everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID, clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID doc. First, I did just want to announce some wonderful news. Febrile is now partnering with IDSA, who will be helping to produce and expand the podcast platform. So super excited to continue to share ID knowledge with you and excitement about the field of ID. So I, of course, would love to just add a plug that I would always love to hear from you, especially if you want to join an episode of Febrile. Febrile really likes to highlight trainees and junior faculty in particular. So if you would like to come on as a representative for your fellowship program or as an individual, I would love to welcome you to the show for an episode. Just let me know. All right. So today we have a great multi-level learner team from the University of Minnesota. Let's meet them. First up, we have Sophie Sampson. Sophie is currently a third-year medical student at the University of Minnesota Medical School. She plans to train in pediatrics and has a particular interest in pediatric ID and neurology. Hi, my name is Sophie, and I'm happy to be here. Next, we have Dr. Kristen Boshtu. Kristen is a pediatric ID fellow from the University of Minnesota. She is interested in the intersection of ID, global child health, climate change, and environmental health. Hi, this is Kristen. Excited to be doing this. And last but not least, we have Dr. Beth Thielen. Beth is an adult and pediatric ID physician scientist at the University of Minnesota. She was previously on episode number 19, Finding a Needle in a Haystack from 2021. She currently leads a lab that is particularly interested in understanding the factors that influence the severity of respiratory viral infections. In addition to that, she has clinical interests in the care of immunocompromised patients, travel and tropical medicine, and clinical immunology. Hi, this is Beth. Happy to be back. All right. And as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, we would love to hear a little piece of culture that brings you happiness. Well, I am a pretty avid reader. So one of my favorite books in the past year is called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And it is um, set in multiple different centuries with a cast of characters and they're all intertwined in some way and it's kind of a a book that's an ode to book lovers in a way so I really enjoyed that I love that so someone mentioned that on February before and I bought it and it's actually sitting like right off camera as my like next selection to read I love it I think I heard about it from one of the curbsiders podcasts actually yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's good it means multiple people liked it just another endorsement well, that's great. Um, I like to read as well, but I actually saw a really cool Netflix show recently, Life on Our Planet. Um, so it's a documentary style film with some CGI graphics. Um, actually, Morgan Freeman narrates it, but they go through some of the really interesting geologic changes of our planet and then the ecosystem changes that were part of it. But I just really loved seeing the reimagined like graphic representation of these weird animals that like hadn't quite evolved yet. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. Very cool. Well, one of my uh, culture moments is uh, that during the pandemic, I took up a new hobby, which was learning to play the accordion. Just a little (laughs) bit of a realization of a lifelong dream. Um, And I play an accordion group and we uh, had an opportunity for our group to travel together to uh, Eastern Italy to a small town called Castle Fidardo 
which is home of both the Guinness Book of World Records world largest accordion, which I was able to play. Um, <laughs> and we were able to tour an accordion factory, which is a kind of ground zero for the manufacturer of accordions. And so uh, that is that is the, my, my piece of culture for today. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> I love it so much. Awesome. Well, I will hand it over to Sophie to get us started. Yeah. So I will start by telling you all a little bit about our patient. So our patient is a seven-year-old girl who presented to the ED a few days before with an acute onset seizure, headache, fever, and largely intact cognition. On the morning of admission, she experienced a right-sided temporal headache. She then developed abdominal pain with one episode of emesis. She laid down and was found drooling and chewing with the right side of her mouth. Her eyes were open but not focused, and she developed left-sided circular arm movements with associated urinary incontinence and tongue biting. She was not interactive, and the episode lasted about one hour, terminating with benzodiazepines given by EMS. In the ED, she had a low-grade fever to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, and initial workup showed mild leukocytosis, elevated absolute neutrophil count, normal CMP except for elevated phosphorus, and inflammatory markers within normal limits. Infectious workup included a group A strep, PCR, and a respiratory viral panel, which were both negative. Kristen, if you got a call based on this information, what are you thinking about at this point in terms of differential diagnosis, and what are you thinking about doing for management? Yeah, thanks, Sophie. Um, so at this point, I think we need to keep our differential pretty broad and consider first any etiologies that could be emergent. When I hear her presentation, the symptoms of headache, emesis, and focal seizure-like activity raise my concern that there could be an intracranial process occurring. An intracranial hemorrhage could present this way, so I think we need to consider some head imaging to rule out an acute bleed. Her low-grade fever and leukocytosis in the context of a seizure could be due to the seizure itself. However, I also want to consider infectious etiologies that could have triggered the seizure. At seven years old, she's older than I would expect for someone having a febrile seizure, so I would like to obtain some additional diagnostic studies to help us investigate the etiology. I would recommend a lumbar puncture so that we can obtain the cerebrospinal fluid studies in order to evaluate further for an infectious cause. I would send meningitis and encephalitis PCR panels in addition to the standard cell count, glucose, protein, and aerobic culture on the CSF fluid. The meningitis encephalitis panel doesn't test for all pathogens, but it can test for several pathogens that are on my differential. These would include Streptococcus pneumoniae and herpes simplex virus. Listeria and E. coli are less common at her age of seven, but are still possible. I would also consider Staphylococcus aureus, and if she is unvaccinated, then Haemophilus influenzae would be a higher possibility. Enterovirus is another one that comes to my mind, particularly in the summertime. And thanks, Kristen. That's a great uh, kind of discussion of your thought process. Um, I did also want to highlight that since we're discussing the possibility of both head imaging and an LP in a patient whom we are uh, ruling out bacterial meningitis, that we should uh, think, you know, think about some of the literature around this. And specifically, I wanted to bring up a, uh, a t that the topic of CT and, and lumbar puncture was recently discussed in the Choosing Wisely campaign uh, as something that we do for no reason. And uh, importantly, I think they make this we make this distinction between patients at high risk and at low risk for abnormal imaging 
testing. And both the IDSA and ESCMID guidelines for bacterial meningitis do include new seizures as a high-risk feature. So this is a patient definitely we'd be considering as high-risk. So with what we know at this time, would you recommend empiric antibiotic treatment? I think that in order to help me answer that, it would be really helpful to have a, an updated understanding of her neurologic status. Because in a patient who's minimally responsive, I would have a lower threshold to start antibiotics and even acyclovir as soon as possible. If her symptoms have resolved and she is stable, then I think it's reasonable to first obtain the lumbar puncture promptly and then start the empiric antibiotic therapy with, um, I would choose ceftriaxone and vancomycin for her. Given that the meningitis encephalitis panel will result fairly quickly, typically within a few hours, if her clinical status is stable, then I would not start empiric acyclovir at this time for her. Finally, when considering the differential diagnosis for a seizure, we should also be thinking about alternative causes in case the patient doesn't respond to treatment as we expect. A focal seizure could be caused by a focal brain lesion, such as a brain tumor, which is another reason I favor pursuing head imaging as part of the initial workup. Other possibilities that are less likely at this time include autoimmune etiologies, such as acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, toxic substance ingestion, or a traumatic injury. A lumbar puncture was performed due to persistent headache that migrated to the back of her head and neck and was notable for CSF neutrophil predominant pleocytosis, 42 nucleated cells with the normal range being between 0 to 5 cells per microliter and normal glucose and protein levels, and a meningitis encephalitis panel and aerobic CSF cultures that are in process. MRI was performed later that day and revealed multiple bilateral T2 hyperintensities. MRA showed no vascular lesions. After the initial LP was performed, she was started on ceftriaxone, 100 mg per cake per day, divided every 12 hours. She had a clinical seizure captured on EEG lasting 90 seconds, and she was subsequently started on levetiracetam. She then spiked two discrete high fevers up to 104.2 degrees Fahrenheit prompting a formal pediatric infectious disease consultation. Cultures are negative to date after 48 hours in the hospital. Kristen, as the ID fellow on the team with this new information, how does this change your differential? Yeah, I, I'm glad we got the lumbar puncture because those results will really help us adjust our differential. So her normal CSF glucose, normal protein, and mild to moderately elevated white blood cell count suggests to me that this is an aseptic men meningitis, which would include viral processes. The MRI findings of multiple T2 hyperintensities also seems more consistent with a viral process rather than bacterial. The aerobic CSF cultures have been negative for 48 hours at this point without any antibiotic pretreatment, which further supports that a bacterial cause such as Staphylococcus aureus, Streptococcus pneumoniae, or meningococcus are unlikely. The negative meningitis encephalitis panel offers some reassurance that this patient does not have HSV or enterovirus, though the sensitivity of the ME panel is not as high as other testing modalities, such as an HSV1 or HSV2-specific PCR. I would be interested to hear my attendees' perspective on when we should consider ordering those additional specific PCR tests in addition to the ME panel. Finally, I note that her fever curve is uptrending to 104, though given that we have good evidence that this is not a bacterial process, I would not add any new antibiotics at this time. 
We also have good evidence this is not HSB, and so I would not add acyclovir either. What I would make sure to do is to follow her neurologic exam closely, and if she develops any new symptoms, such as areflexia or paralysis, then I would want rapid imaging of her spinal cord and a neurology consult in order to evaluate for inflammatory or demyelinating diseases, such as transverse myelitis. She should be monitored closely if those processes are suspected because respiratory status can rapidly decompensate in that setting. Thanks, Kristen. Yeah, I agree that at this point, 48 hours into illness, I think my suspicion for a typical bacterial meningitis is much, much lower. And particularly given we have negative cultures and negative meningitis encephalitis panel and fevers that have, have persisted despite appropriately dosed ceftriaxone. Um, I think at this point where I'm thinking about going is moving on to our next tier testing for more unusual pathogens. Um, but I also want to spend a couple of minutes just talking about the performance characteristics of the testing thus far. And so I'm a little bit less reassured that we've adequately ruled out HSV when the clinical picture, and in this case, new onset focal seizures, would, would potentially be compl clinically compatible. Um, and so it's well described that HSV PCR can be falsely negative, particularly early in the disease course. Um, and I think there's also there's also been several systematic reviews now with increasing number of patients that have showed uh, lower sensitivity of the the multiplex panels for HSV. Um, so I'm I'm really thinking about wanting to repeat the LP both for more specific testing for things like HSV, um, but also to see how the CSF parameters have evolved over time. And I think this would also have the benefit of allowing us to get additional specimen volume to send for that second tier testing. And oftentimes we're limited in terms of CSF volume for the things that we we want to test for. And so we have to be a little bit strategic sometimes about prioritizing our testing and making sure that we have enough sample to get those high priority tests. Um, in terms of specific microbes that I'm thinking about, so I think things like arboviruses, LCMB, and Lyme disease are some of the, the pathogens that aren't included on those multiplex panels. Um, certainly respiratory viruses like flu are associated sometimes with neurological symptoms. Like in her case, we have a negative respiratory panel on admission, so those seem less likely. Um, I think I also want to ask about TB risk factors, and so that's one of the other uh, you know, disease processes that wouldn't come up on routine testing and could present with kind of seizures and, and a um, meningitis-type picture. And, and a big question brought up by the neurology team was whether to treat with steroids or IVIG for a possible autoimmune encephalitis. Beth, what were the considerations there? Yeah, so I think I'd, I'd want to know a bit more about how consistent the neurology team thinks the features are with an autoimmune process. Um, and in this case, talking with them, I feel like they um, were not really super convinced that this is what, what they thought was going on. And, and and at this point, I don't feel like we have a clear diagnosis. And so in cases like that, when we have the two immunomodulatory therapies mentioned, I think IVIG would be the safer option, but it still has downsides. Um, so some of the infectious processes that I'm thinking about, maybe we may need serology to diagnose them and IVIG would impact um, our ability to make those diagnoses. Um, Furthermore, when an untreated infection is in the differential, I prefer to hold off on steroids. There's definitely some infections where steroids may make things look better for a while before they get worse due to the impairment to the immune control. And so I think if there's not a compelling reason why urgent treatment is needed, I would really focus our efforts on making the diagnosis before we embark on a treatment. Yeah, it, it sounds like we are in agreement that a viral process is at least very likely, um, and we want to recommend additional studies at this time. 
it would be helpful to also obtain additional exposure history for this patient, particularly outdoor exposure, travel history, animal exposures, and social history. Sophie, do you have any more of that for us? Yeah, um, and the neurology team doesn't feel strongly that this looks like an autoimmune process, but don't have any other ideas. They've sent autoantibodies, but these will take days to come back. Um, so to fill you in on some of the social history, it's currently mid-July. The patient lives in a suburb of the Twin Cities and has been regularly active outside around the family's home this summer. The family has dogs, cats, and chickens. And one of the dogs had ticks earlier in the spring, but no ticks were found on family members. She did not have any rodent or bat exposures. Her family camped along a river five days before symptom onset. The patient's mom recalls that there was a transient red bump on her torso present at the time of her initial seizure, but has since resolved. She has not traveled outside of Minnesota, notably. How does this additional information influence the differential diagnosis and management? Thanks, Sophie. That history is really helpful. It stands out to me that her symptoms started five days after the family went camping in July. I wonder if the skin bump that was described could be a mosquito bite. The outdoor exposure brings into question if her illness is potentially caused by a vector-borne disease, which we do see more of in the summer months in Minnesota. There are many diseases in this category, so I'm glad that we have obtained her travel history to help narrow the list down a little bit. It sounds like she and her family have only been in, in Minnesota, so I would start building my differential with this location in mind. Given that we already suspect a viral process based on her CSF results, I'm suspicious of an arboviral infection. West Nile virus, Western equine encephalitis, and lacrosse encephalitis are considered endemic to Minnesota. More recently, Jamestown Cannon virus is also emerging as a cause of disease in our state. Of these possibilities, lacrosse encephalitis more often affects children compared to adults. In fact, the most common arboviral cause of central nervous system infection in children in the United States is lacrosse virus. There are about 80 to 100 cases reported annually in the U.S., and 90% of those occur in children. This is in contrast to West Nile virus, which shows a peak incidence in adults over 60 years old. Jamestown Canyon epidemiology also indicates a lower percent of children with these cases at about 7%. These viruses are all spread from animal reservoirs to humans through mosquitoes. However, we do have other important vector-borne diseases in Minnesota. With the outdoor exposure, I think it's worth considering if there are other etiologies we could be missing. Sophie, what are some additional vector-borne diseases that we could consider? Well, Kristen, thanks for covering viruses spread by mosquitoes that we think about in Minnesota. We also want to think about vector-borne diseases spread by ticks in this area. This includes Lyme and other Borrelia species, Anaplasma and Babesia, as well as Filaremia, Ehrlichiosis, and Powassan virus. It's important to note that lacking known exposure has a low negative predictive value for these vector-borne diseases since bites often go unnoticed. Knowing a patient is in a general location where they may have been exposed to a specific tick or mosquito is more helpful to keep in mind. Thanks, Sophie. At this point for our patient, I think we need to obtain additional testing to evaluate for arboviral disease. I want to contact the Minnesota Department of Health at this time because their laboratory will be the one to process the studies. I often find it helpful to know ahead of time what types of specimens they'll require for the testing. Particularly for samples such as cerebrospinal fluid, I want to make sure that it's processed appropriately and not wasted. The Minnesota Department of Health requested blood, serum, and CSF samples for IgM antibody and RNA detection. 
They listed some specific tests, such as an IgM for West Nile virus, Powassan virus, Jamestown Canyon, Western and Eastern equine encephalitis, California group encephalitis, and St. Louis encephalitis, which was ordered. Urine, blood, and urine RT-PCR for West Nile virus was also ordered. Given this large panel of viruses, I'm bracing myself for the potential of some cross-reactivity, and I'll need to discuss these results carefully with my attending in order to interpret them. In the event that we had used our in-house laboratory for testing, I think it's important for everyone to know that arbovirus disease is reportable, at least in Minnesota, to our state health department, and it has to be reported within one working day. A lumbar puncture was repeated for this patient due to her high-grade fevers despite starting ceftriaxone as well as the seizures. Opening pressure of the repeat lumbar puncture was 21.5 centimeters of water. CSF studies show evolution over time with an increase to 578 nucleated cells per microliter with 78% lymphocytes, stable glucose, and now protein elevation. Kristen, how does this new information impact your diagnostic thinking? This lumbar puncture shows an increased white blood cell count that is predominantly lymphocytic. As long as her clinical status is stable, this is consistent with the evolution of a viral central nervous infection. I'm glad that we can send the CSF to the health department and hopefully identify the etiology. You mentioned that both serology and nucleic acid-based testing was sent to the health department. What is the role of serology versus molecular or nucleic acid-based tests in arboviral disease? Yeah, so for many arboviral infections, the period during which virus can be detected in any body fluid is typically quite short. And for this reason, PCRs can be helpful if they're positive, but are not necessarily sensitive enough to rule out disease. So our health department offers a PCR for West Nile virus, but not the other viruses in our differential. And so therefore, serological testing is the mainstay for diagnosis. Um, focusing on, in on those serologies, a single positive IgG is difficult to interpret given the relatively high risk of past undiagnosed exposure in our region, but a fourfold rise between an acute and a convalescent collected sample would be supportive. Um, for this case where there's a, we're looking at acute testing, we're really looking for positive IgMs to indicate that acute infection, but they may be falsely positive in other inflammatory disorders or cross-reactive against related viruses. And so uh, typically a positive result on an IgM is followed up with a plaque reduction neutralization assay in which serial dilutions of patient serum or CSF are incubated with virus in vitro to determine the concentration at which antibodies are able to inactivate viruses such that they can no longer infect cells and replicate in culture. So in this case, higher titers would be indicate a more specific reaction against a particular virus and would support it being a true pathogen and not cross-reactive. So such confirmatory plaque neutralization assays are really commonly used in arbovirology to distinguish between cross-reactive viruses. So examples would be the California serogroup bunuviruses, which would include Jamestown Canyon virus and the cross virus, and then also the flaviviruses like West Nile, yellow fever, and dengue. So for our patient, an initial screening, arbovirus, IgM, IFA, that tests for California group encephalitis viruses, EEEV, WEEV, and SLEV was positive for the California group. Initial IgM EIA testing done at MDH on serum was positive for Jamestown Canyon virus, equivocal for Powassan, and negative for West Nile virus. Serum PCR was negative for West Nile virus. 
CSF IgM EIA testing was positive for Jamestown Canyon virus and Powassan and negative for West Nile virus by both IgM and PCR. Urine PCR for West Nile virus was also negative. Confirmatory testing was sent to Arboviral Diseases Branch Diagnostic and Reference Laboratory in Fort Collins, Colorado. Serum testing revealed positive IgM for Jamestown Canyon virus and the cross by IgM Capture ELISA and negative for IgM for Powassan. Lacrosse plaque reduction neutralization occurred at a greater than 1 to 4096 titer, but unfortunately there was not sufficient sample for Jamestown Canyon virus testing. Plaque re reduction neutralization testing was also performed on CSF and was positive at a 1 to 128 titer against Lacrosse. 1 to 4 for Jamestown Canyon and was negative for Powassan. Beth, can you discuss the interpretation of these results? Sure. Um, in this case, our initial testing was a little bit confusing because the results sort of supported uh, potential, potentially either or both uh, California group encephalitis virus, of which Jamestown Canyon was one, uh, and Powassan. Uh, and there's, uh, since there was not a specific screening IgM for lacrosse, uh, we we were not able to test for that, and then in the, specifically in the initial round of testing. Um, and this this is an example where the confirmatory plaque reduction neutralization assays were really critical. So the results came. Back with very high titers against the cross uh, virus encephalitis pathogen with much lower titers uh, against the Jamestown Canyon virus and a negative uh, capture IgM against Powassan. So overall, these results were interpreted as being confirmatory of the uh, cross virus infection being the uh, primary pathogen in this case. And Beth, what do we know about the epidemiology of lacrosse encephalitis? Yeah, so this uh, this pathogen was first described in the literature in 1965 uh, in a four-year-old child from south southeastern Minnesota who sought care in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and ultimately died from an acute neurological illness. So that's the, hence the origin of the name. Um, so as, as Kristen mentioned, there's really a range of any, anywhere as low as 30 up to 90 or, or more uh, cases per year of neuroinvasive disease reported in the United States, uh, and the vast, vast majority of those are among children. Um, it, the neurological disease is probably just the tip of the iceberg as there's substantial underdiagnosis and underreporting of less severe cases. And so, so how do we know this? So there was a serological survey that was done um, in, in a town in southeastern Minnesota called Winona, and they had seropositivity rates of up to 28% in some of the rural areas. So I think in places where there's the right geographic exposure and sort of a high-risk population like residents in a rural region, there's probably quite a lot of exposure on an infection that we're not is not coming to medical attention. Um, and so there's really a couple of pockets of this, of where this disease is predominantly diagnosed. So it's the upper Midwest, so Minnesota and Wisconsin are really high high areas, and then also through, through Appalachia. So Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, North Carolina are big pockets of this disease. Um, it's really not clear why only a small fraction of the people who are exposed develop neuroinvasive disease. Um, and something that my lab is particularly interested in is, is host susceptibility. Um, and there's really been some interesting data that have come out in the last year looking at uh, the prevalence of autoantibodies against type 1 interferons in patients who develop neuroinvasive West Nile. And so I think there's more, more to come and more to learn about what, why it is that some people are more susceptible to these severe manifestations of viral pathogens than others. So Sophie, you had some time to uh, interact with our health department. Uh, what can you tell us about what can be done to prevent lacrosse encephalitis? 
Yeah, so as the medical student on the team, I was able to speak with an epidemiologist on the Vector Borne Disease Unit at the Minnesota Department of Health and learn more about the follow-up and prevention measures taken in this case. So early on, MDH involved the Metropolitan Mosquito Control District and the family allowed them to inspect their property. The initial evaluation involved removal of old tires and containers from the family's yard. The Mosquito Control District removed eight tires, four of which had larvae, and 32 containers, 20 of which had larvae. Aedes triceriatus was found in seven of the larval habitats. The family was educated on the importance of dumping standing water in toys and containers since they can serve as a breeding site for this mosquito. They filled one tree hole near the residence with soil, although mosquito larvae was absent upon further inspection. Mosquito Control District also sampled adult mosquitoes and sprayed adulticides the following day. They attempted similar surveillance and control measures in the surrounding area and notified neighboring houses about lacrosse risk in the area. The neighborhood will have continued surveillance for several, several years to eliminate larvae that may carry lacrosse virus. MDH provided their unique perspective on the epidemiology of previous lacrosse cases they've been involved in and educated the family on mosquito bite prevention. Kristen, can you tell us more about standard mosquito precautions? Absolutely, Sophie. There are several approaches to reduce the risk of mosquito bites. First, bug spray can be used on the skin whenever there's a risk for exposure to mosquitoes or ticks, particularly during the months of April through November in Minnesota. There are many products available, but you want to make sure it's a product registered by the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. The most common active ingredients include DEET, picaridin, and oil of lemon eucalyptus. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends selecting a concentration of DEET that matches your expected outdoor exposure time. For example, 10% DEET provides protection for about two hours, and 30% DEET provi provides protection for about five hours. The maximum concentration you should buy is 50% because anything beyond that does not actually provide longer protection, despite a potentially higher price for something that says 100% DEET. Picaridin is another active ingredient that can repel mosquitoes and ticks. Similar to DEET, the concentration correlates with duration of protection. 5% picaridin provides about 3 to 4 hours of protection, while 20% can provide protection for 8 to 12 hours. Oil of lemon eucalyptus is the other option I mentioned, but it's important to know that this is not the same as lemon oil. You should make sure that your OLE product is registered by the EPA and it should not be used in children under 3 years old. OLE of a concentration of 8 to 10% can protect for up to 2 hours and 30% concentration up to 40% concentration can protect for about six hours. For all of these products, it's important to read the label and avoid applying them directly to a child's hands because we all know that the hands are gonna end up in the mouth and the eyes and increase risk for ingestion or eye ir irritation. When using insect repellent with sunscreen, the sunscreen should be applied first. Other than topical bug spray, you can also choose to wear long sleeve clothing and pre-treat the clothing with permethrin. You could also choose to avoid areas with dense vegetation. Finally, mosquito nets are a great option and you can pre-treat those with insecticide as well. So for our patient, it sounds like Sophie, you had some excellent communication with the Department of Health and they worked with the family to talk about prevention. What did you learn from talking to the family or from MDH about how the child's doing now and what the future might look like? 
Well, when I was able to speak with the family, they updated me on her six-week follow-up after discharge and shared that at that time she was having headaches about every two weeks, but she has had no new seizures. She's doing well in school and remains social and active with some activity modification to follow seizure precautions, but overall it's doing excellent. Repeat brain imaging, um, both MRI and EEG done at the follow-up showed resolution of prior lesions. She's tapering off levetiracetam and will continue to follow up with neurology. The parents shared that while seeing their daughter so sick and having seizures was incredibly scary, they felt supported by all the teams involved in her care, and they're happy to see her back on track and doing the things she enjoys. Thanks again to Sophie, Kristen, and Beth for joining Febrile today. Febrile is produced with support from the Infectious Diseases Society of America, or IDSA. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you can find the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.